welcome back to Making Sense of the Madness, the future award-winning podcast that looks at what's going on and what's going wrong with mental health in the UK today. In our last episode, we took a deep dive into CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. CBT is a therapy for our times. It offers a quick fix, short-term, reductionist treatment that uses numbers to both measure patients' well-being and to promote its own success. But we explored why the data behind its success could arguably be described as corrupt science and why, despite its claims, it is insufficient for many people's needs. My name is Chatterbox Bobsey, known by HMRC as Rob Thorman. In this episode, together with my mother-in-law, the one and only Merrin Jones, we interview organisational consultant Dick Blackwell, and we dig into why CBT and treatments like it are so pervasive within our NHS. As we know, the NHS is paid for by the taxpayer, so there is an understandable need to be able to demonstrate value for money. Yet, as we've seen through CBT, mental health is an inherently nebulous term that's particularly difficult to quantify. And so it presents a natural challenge for our healthcare system to demonstrate that its mental health treatments are cost effective. Dick has written about the challenges that the NHS faces within a wider economic and political environment and what the problems are with treatment that is data-driven and profit-driven. It's a fascinating chat, one that encourages us to start thinking more broadly about the environments that our mental health provision operates in and how the current culture of managerialism might be contributing to the challenges that the NHS faces today. We hope you enjoy it and we hope that it helps you make some sense of the madness. Here we are, episode four. Wow. We are getting through it, Meza. We are. We're on fire, Rob. <laughs> so this episode, we're looking at the NHS a bit more broadly and how mm. it kind of functions as a kind of institution. So Merrin, I wanted to ask you, because you were, were you not, back in the, was it the 20s or the... <laughs> the 70s. The 70s. Okay, no, it's, it's quite still quite a while ago. Yes. Uh, but you were a nurse, right? Oh, yes, I was for a very short time when I realised I was completely in the wrong uh, profession. What? Tell me, tell me, isn't, haven't you got like a little story about a linen cupboard or something? Oh, my goodness. Yes, I was a student nurse and we had to hide in the linen cupboard every time the consultant came on his wardrobe because he didn't like to see nurses. What? Why? I don't know. Sexist pig. (laughs) You know, they all wore bloody bow ties and... Checked jackets and ran the world and I realised I was bottom of the pile as I was folding up little children's clothes and putting them in piles and thinking, this isn't me. I remember, didn't you, didn't you also say like there was just, you know, when you talk to patients and things. You weren't to, no, you mustn't talk to patients. That's wasting time. You had to be busy. You had to make sure that Westminster Crest was straight on the blanket and the cot wheels were straight. Wowzer. I mean, it is, I mean, that anecdote already feels like is telling us so much because mm. it's getting into the, you know, in the 70s, that was, we've got all that kind of gender hierarchy, mm. the kind of, the, the doctor was, you know, king and king very much with that gendered use of that word. Mm. And I think what's going to be so interesting to talk to Dick about is, you know, thinking about how the NHS has obviously and how our society has changed. Um, but you know, some of the kind of eternal pressures that the NHS faces as a kind of publicly funded funded mm. body. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think Dick will be great because he's got a long history of knowledge as well. So he will help us make, make sense, sense of the madness. madness. Marin, look at you go. <laughs> So we are very lucky to be talking to um, today to Dick Blackwell, who's a group analyst, family therapist and organisational consultant, and has got many years of experience in all of these things. Um, so Dick, maybe to kind of start off with, um, so we've been, Mary and I have kind of been talking about um, focusing kind of on CBT and thinking about, you know, what sort of um, therapies get um, funding or not kind of within the NHS more generally. Um, but I think what you've kind of written about and thought about and we'd like to talk to kind of you about is in a way that this issue sort of springboards to something to a kind of a wider issue about how the NHS sort of sits in a bigger global picture within sort of private health um, today and some of the challenges that that brings can I can I sort of get you to talk to us a little bit about that yeah yeah you see I <clears throat> I think within the, the within the current global economy that that we have um, there's, you know, the, the, the whole issue about the market and what the market can resolve, the ideology of neoliberal economics that shifts everything into the market. So the question as to whether you can have a state-run, efficient national health service is very important because, first of all, you've got the vast amount of money that is involved in private health care. Um, that has a huge vested interest in the idea that um, that's that's a more efe efficient way to provide healthcare than having a state-run free health service. So already we've got a, a crucial kind of ideological issue being fought out uh, around whether this health service is going to succeed or not. And I think there's a vested interest in it failing at some conscious or unconscious level um, that if the, the more it fails the stronger the case is made for private health care and I've heard that for some time sort of leftist commentators and journalists have held off writing critically about the NHS because they've been concerned to about giving ammunition to people who want to get rid of a, of a public health service mm. so to have to have an effective public health service becomes an example to the rest of the world. You know, if they can do it in the UK and then do it in one or two other places, why can't they do it everywhere? So globally, you've got this conflict about whether there's going to be um, free public health care run effectively and efficiently or whether it's all going to go into the, the private market. Uh, added to that, you see, I think is a further issue of if, if the state can run a health service then maybe it can run railways maybe it can run supplies of electricity gas whatever else so it's not only an issue about healthcare; it's an issue about how much the state can actually provide effectively and how much has to be privatized mm. and people then get very anxious about you know we, we're moving more and more in the direction of some kind of socialist economy the more that the state takes on now i'm not of the opinion that the state can do everything um but there seems to me there are important things that do need to be taken on by the state um and i think that's one of the the political and ideological issues that's around so then i think we've got the kind of 
the way that neoliberal economic thinking has got Sorry. into Dick, can yeah. we just so so neoliberal economic now neoliberalism is something that I sort of frequently love to bandy around without actually really knowing what exactly that means. What do what do we mean by this kind of neoliberal market agenda? What what do we mean by that? Okay, um, I mean basically, it, you know, it came from a guy called Hayek who was a, I think, an economist and who came out of the Eastern Bloc writing a lot about the way that the state and the state running everything stifled um, economic development, stifled initiative and so on. So, so he was a real advocate of freeing everything up and, and a kind of total libertarian approach to economics. And his work was taken up by Milton Friedman at the Chicago School of Economics. And the idea is really that you shrink the state as far as possible and you don't have good government intervention in private enterprise so you leave every, everything really to the forces and the developments of capitalism um, and that is that that is how it works except there's one exception which is that the workers are not allowed to freely combine in trade unions and challenge the employers and the interests of capital so although it's the, the the doctrine is of non-intervention there is actually a very powerful intervention which is anti-trade union legislation um to tilt the scales in the favor of capital against that of, of of labor and i mean i suppose you know we're going back into kind of history and what i think marx and lenin said about the state being the executive committee of the bourgeoisie now, that can sound oversimplified, but I think it's very important to recognise the massive pressures from the economy against any government in the West that has come to power um, that tries to implement any kind of, of socialist programme. And I think, you know, we got a welfare state at the end of 200 years of struggle of organised labour when we finally got a, a government that rep to a significant extent represented the interests of that labor movement basically through the trade union movement and you know it's important to remember that the labor party was essentially founded to give the trade union movement representation in the political arena of, of parliament and so on it, you know it didn't, it didn't just emerge out of the liberal party um, and, and so when you're talking about this creation of the welfare state that's obviously that involves you know bringing us to the nhs that's when the nhs is sort of born and this kind of challenge that you're talking about these sort of two competing forces of kind of western government versus this new sort of neoliberal theory kind of clash yeah and then that sort of brings us to how we're looking at today the sort of challenges of mental health provision now right yeah yeah so when when we when we think about um how the nhs has developed um you know up to the time when thatcher came to power Hospitals were primarily run by doctors. You know, there was a hospital administrator who kind of oiled the wheels and, and dealt with the equipment and, and, and all of that. But all, this, all the main decisions um, were taken by, I think, what used to be called a divisional meeting of, of all the consultants. Now, Thatcher's intervention was to, to, to change all that completely and bring in the idea that if you knew how to run a supermarket, you could run a hospital or a health service. So we get this, this 
influx of, of, of managers and, and management thinking into the health service that starts at the beginning of the 1980s um, and has really developed all the way through. Now, can, uh, I, can I pause there on that? Because so, yeah. obviously that's a, that's a pivotal moment, right? Yeah. But, um, and and Merrin, you, I mean, you had, ex when, when were you a, a nurse working in hospitals? What kind of time was that? Oh, well, I was a nurse in um, 74. So if, what is there, is there any, if, if, um, was there, was there anything behind a political ideology motivating that decision? Were there things that could have been improved? You know, if, if we're trying to understand that decision getting signed off on, was there a problem that needed solving that has now gone too far? Or, you know, could I invite yeah. you both to talk I, about that? Well, Dick, I think from my perspective, having been, well, I was only a nurse for a year, I couldn't stand it, <laughs> because of the dominance of the doctor and the sort of, you know, in innate sexism, around that time and that the doctors ruled they had their team it was very paternalistic um, and everyone else was subjugated to that and I think that there was some sense that that should be freed up and other people who knew and had their own skills and their own trainings should also be part of decision making but I I think that's, you know, like matrons and uh, physiotherapists and pharmacologists and, you know, hopefully psychotherapists and things like that, you know, did become, I think, were up for a bit of a change. But obviously the sort of economics of what is a manager, I think, you know, is very interesting because managers that have come more recently, I think, have no clinical background. Well, I mean, my experience was, I think that, you know, I mean, there were jokes around at that time in the early 70s about, you know, arguments at the gates of heaven and St. Peter saying God thinks he's a consultant psychiatrist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, certainly I think that was a real problem. And it was, you know, I think the anti-psychiatry movement mm. very much addressed some of those those dynamics and i think the therapeutic community movement was also a sort of a, a, a attempt to to shift the power around a bit and generate a, a bit more um democracy within within the, the the psychiatric treatment unit um but my recollection was you know when, when the doctors first started to be a little bit disempowered quite a few of us were cheering and saying this is a good thing but within a very short space of time um the whole thing had been taken over by managers which is uh, as you just said Mary you know had little or no clinical experience or understanding at all and we were all saying you know that it's kind of be careful what you wish for you know mm. bring back bring back the consultant psychiatrist because at least he was in day-to-day -day contact with patients and was ready to put what he perceived as the interest of the patients before any anything else. Mm. Then we go into an area of, of cost and efficiency and, and all that kind of, of management thinking <clears throat> that increasingly disempowers clinical staff or puts them into a managerial position mm. where in many ways their, their decision-making is constrained by budgets that mm. are being handed down from higher levels of, of, of management. So now, what, why why is it? Because in my uh, you know head as someone who isn't a, has any experience at all, um, why can't you? If you are good at running things and you're efficient, 
why does it not work because if if you know you, you're both professionals a doctor could be professional a nurse being professional in my mind is the public i want those people to be freed up that all their time is spent doing what they're good at i don't want them to have to be the ones who are having to do all the organizing of it because in my you know they're very different skills so why does it not work just to have you know and, and i also understand that within different say within a hospital you know they'll everyone will want their department to have the biggest budget because that's just you know how, how we all work so what well, yeah what's the problem with it ah well, <laughs> see, it's a, it's very interesting because i i my first degree was in uh, was in administrative science and that was late 1960s and it was a time when people were first starting to argue that management was a science and that it was tra a transferable set of skills from one setting to another. But what I think we, we learned very quickly was that if you were going to run a, an engineering company, for example, it, it helped if you knew what a crankshaft was. <laughs> And, and what a turbocharger was. And if you didn't, you'd really got to go to the chief engineer and say, I need your help here because there's some things that I can do, but there are other areas where I really need your expertise and I'm gonna to have to defer to you. So you, you enter into a partnership then between the overall management and the people who actually you know, know how the, the whole how the whole thing works. And I think that's that got lost. And I think the management and the and the the clinicians in the NHS got got more have gotten more and more separated. But I think also a substantial number of clinicians have now brought in bought into a particular kind of management ideology. And we see that in the way that um, uh, treatment or therapy has become increasingly task focused yeah. and the way that people who are unhappy, distressed, um, labelled as mentally ill or, or, or whatever, um, the way that they're treated is very much objectified into a set of problems um, and a set of skills and there's then attempt, an attempt to measure their recovery and it's done in terms of numbers. So we're into something from the what I regard as being from the economy, that the only thing that really matters are things you can put numbers on and things you can put a price on. And if it doesn't have an, a numerical value and can't be quantified, then it either doesn't exist or it isn't important or it isn't very relevant. Sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted. Oh, I mean, yes, safe. yes, Dick. Marion's <laughs> cheering you. This is our theme. This is our this whole. Is all it, isn't it? This is our whole premise that somehow, and I don't know whether you'd agree, Dick, but you know about this sort of eco economic sort of profit motive that gets into something like a, a health service. You know, like there is no, you know, you can't have both in a sense, or it's very tricky. There's a real innate tension. Well, it's this is my understanding. So again, correct me, please correct me if I'm wrong. But so my understanding. So this is this is sort of hyper rationalism, right? It's, it's this idea that the sort of um, enlightenment values of like questioning and science, it sort of sp spills over and grows to something that becomes almost farcical. Where if it, you know, the only thing that matters, sorry, the only thing that matters is what you can count. Yeah. And if you can't count it, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah. Which obviously, when you come to something like mental health. Is incredibly difficult to quantify and measure and when that meets the kind of managerialism forces suddenly we get quite farcical situations is that is that an accurate summary 
yeah, it's the attempt to convert quality into quantity. Yes. Is, you know, which is intensely problematic and you lose all sorts of dimensions of quality. Can you, when you, can you give us an quality. example of that? What's, you know, how, 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 how on the ground in your experience has that played out to something we know that would, you would find immensely frustrating? Well, let me, sorry, let me try and take the problem another way because I, I first came into this business um, via working with the Samaritans as a volunteer. And what you're doing as Samaritans, basically, with people who are feeling suicidal or feeling so distressed that they're heading that way, is basically you, you picked up a telephone and listened because what they needed to do was talk. And sometimes they wanted to talk for 20 minutes. Sometimes they wanted to talk for an hour and a half. Um, sometimes they had enough when they'd had one long talk. Other times they wanted to retain contact. Um, they wanted to make more phone calls or they wanted to come in and see somebody face to face. There was no standard pattern. There wasn't a one size that could fit everybody. What there was was a system of being led by the client and what the client actually wanted and responding to that. Um, and that, in a way, is a kind of model for how it works, because patients with what are labelled as mental health issues actually want different things and they, they, you know, they, they need different kinds of spaces. So the task becomes to provide a service that is actually effectively led by the patient or at least by the patient in negotiation. Um, with the doctor or therapist rather than having a service there already to to kind of impose on what whatever comes through the door and I spent several years working in a, a local authority um, at what be with a project that began as a psychiatric day center where they wanted a five-year plan they wanted a vision into the future of to what the take-up of places that this center was going to be over the next five years. And I kept saying, but that is not how to run a community mental health service. The key to a community mental health service is flexibility. So that as the community changes, as demands change, um, you're able to respond to what actually comes in through the door rather than trying to predict in advance what's gonna come in through the door. And I think, you know, people who've been involved in, uh, well, I don't say other, other people involved in management consultancy are, are I think, more of the more and more of the opinion that planning um, is very problematic because the odds that what you predict, which is what you're planning for, is actually going to happen are lower and lower and lower. I mean, you know, you can't predict the future. I think the Duke of the was it the Duke of Wellington said no no plan survives contact with the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> It's very, it's very profound, really, because you have whatever plan you have, but then you don't know what's going to happen. My my local authority was was out near Heathrow Airport. Well, you know, what happens if a plane falls out of the sky and creates a sort of huge crisis? I thought that a mental health service in the community ought to be able to respond fairly rapidly to that kind of event. Um, and you can't do that if you've got a rigid kind of five-year plan that outlines, you know, what you provide, when you provide it, and, and all this kind of structure. So it was not just about your structure, but it was also about your state of mind in a community mental health service. It was about responding to what people brought in rather than getting caught up in predetermined 
um, responses. But how do you measure? How do you measure that? And and one of the other important things about about the work with the Samaritans was, I knew I had some idea that a significant number of people carried round a card with the telephone number of the, of their local Samaritans branch in their wallet, in their purse, in their handbag, but they, and they never called. What what kept them going? was being able to look at that card and know that they got some support at the other end of a telephone and then they didn't need to use it. Now, how do you measure that? Well, I think that also, sorry, Dick, but just to come in as a as a social worker by background and as a Mm. therapist, I think that absolutely sort of fits with, I think, in the old days, it was seen as Um, yes you had to be flexible and having some sort of relationship with people was the key it's relational work Mm -hmm. and therefore you might not need to see someone um, a lot after you've done something uh, beginning and done something but what they want to hear is and to know is that they can come back or that you're still there or you might check in every so often that seems to be really causing problems in modern mental health services where it's all a quick fix you can only work short term if they want to come back they have to be re-referred they have to go through the process they have to sit you know and that makes people feel very short-changed I think and abandoned but those sort of things aren't measurable they're just treated as new cases each time and you've done your work and out you go I mean that sort of quick fix seems to, I think, um, reflect what you're saying has become more and more sort of from management and with limited resources. And CBT does seem to have provided quite a good way of arguing that that model fits for human distress. What do you think? Well, I, I, I set up a brief therapy project many years ago. It about, must be about 40 odd years ago now. Um, that was going to give people, I think, 10 or 12 sessions. And it, it had been designed in the States for, for a very different kind of, of population, for people who'd already had lots of therapy and hadn't seemed to make much progress with it. And what we realised almost as soon as we started implementing was that a lot of the... the a significant number of the people coming to see us had already been through the care system or they'd had one social worker and then another social worker and another social worker and they're always being left you know the workers moved on or they got shifted somewhere and we said at that point this this is crazy to tell people you you know you've got 10 sessions and, and then you're out because we're just reproducing the kind of pattern of neglect and rejection that they've already encountered for much of their lives. So we turned it around and we started saying, well, you know, you can come here for as long as you want. How long do you think you might want to come for? Um, One year, two years, five years, ten years. Usually when we got past five years, certainly when we got to 10, they said, oh, my God, I don't want to keep coming here for that long. I want to get this sorted out in a hurry, you know. But that's why we need a variety of services, don't we? I used to work in a therapeutic day service where we had a drop-in, and some people only used the drop-in, or but could come for as long as many sessions for as long as they liked. It was still a very skilled place to 
working, but because we had to manage some very, very disturbed or damaged people. But that seemed to be a place where they felt they could belong. There was no time limit. Of course, we had to shut it every, so, you know, it was only open at certain times. But I suppose in my, the back of my head, I, I feel like there might be people saying, but we haven't got limitless resources. We can't fund everything. How do you make decisions? What's your thoughts on that? One of the things I encountered doing some uh, con consultancy work to uh, community mental health teams was when they first brought in the idea of, um, what was it, user groups, I think, when they bring a whole lot of patients together to say what they wanted. The, the, the problem with that was they went from a, from a situation where the patients got virtually ignored or their views and opinions got ignored to a situation where they felt they had to jump to attention for, to every demand however unrealistic that the patients made so the patients came along and said we want the center open 24 7 and they didn't the, the staff didn't feel able to say well we can't do that you'll be unrealistic you know so you know, there has to be a negotiation. And I mean, my guess is that the kind of setting you're talking about, Mary, you know, if there are cuts that have to be made, then I would say sit down with the people who use the drop-in and say, this is the problem we have. We're going to have budgets being slashed. You know, how, how can we sort this out together so that we keep this drop-in going for as much of the time as possible? Mm. But, you know, the idea of involving patients in those kind of decisions is, is very difficult to get across. It's but much easier actually to sit down with the patients and discuss it than it is to persuade managers that it's a good idea. <laughs> but also it becomes a tick boxing effect if we're not careful. There yeah, has yeah. been this pressure that users must be involved, but it's become such a sort of tokenistic thing because it feels like there isn't any flexibility because we're being starved of resources, but also because of the dominance of one particular approach that fits with what you've been talking about, the neoliberal managerial sort of uh, economy where everything is reduced to where's your evidence? If you haven't got evidence, you don't exist. If you haven't got evidence, what you've got to offer is worthless. And then it gets tragic consequences where Poor people who are very unskilled and unsupported are having to make triage calls through IAT for 40 minutes on a phone to people who have got a lifetime of problems and are saying, I'm in distress, are desperate for something long-term and meaningful and skilled. And what they get offered is a sort of social skills group, mm. psychoeducation, and then some CBT, and I'm not saying all CBT is useless at all. I'm saying it has its place. But like you're saying, there has to be a variety, a choice. It has to be flexible. People need to be helped at times. Some people might say, I don't want something. And you might think, well, I think you would really benefit from it. But it's also about the timing. So I think there's all those issues. And when you're talking about, you know, evidence, I think, because what you're talking about, you know, what you're well, talking about is part of the problem is that, that it's expanding our definition of what evidence is, right? Because mm -hmm. at the moment, the frustration that I think both of you are talking about is that there's this, it's everything is reduced yes. to something that's incredibly difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. So if we only have this way of 
assessing evidence with mm. something that is numerical, statistical, mm. you can count it. It's just not an efficient way of accurately measuring, you know, the mind, which, yeah. as we know, is so multifaceted, nebulous, mm. complex. And obviously, it's always going to be challenging to provide evidence for that. Mm. But it's not surprising, given the sort of, at the moment, what seems to be this overweight in kind of managerialism, hyper-rationalism, that the, the, the kinds of therapies that can speak that language yes. are getting the fundings. And if you mm. can't speak that language or even disagree that it's the right mm. language to be communicating in, you're kind of shut out. Is, is, that the, is, is that the kind of problem? Yes, and it becomes more and more private that people are more and more searching for longer term, more complex therapies, but they're being forced into the private system, which is a tragedy. It should all be in the NHS. Which goes back to what you were talking about at the start, Dick, right? About this sort of, you know, almost there are there are um, forces of, you know, capital to use a kind of Marxist language, but essentially people with vested interests who almost want it to fail because then it pushes people to seek that out privately, right? Well, it it it, it open. I mean, more than pushing individuals to seek it privately, it it, it pushes the whole system into the idea that that, that private healthcare um is is the way forward you know and then you've got i mean you've got an idea of the scale of of private healthcare in in america when there was talk about you know negotiations with trump for american private healthcare companies to effectively take over the whole of the of the nhs so that's a huge business mm. interest at work there mm. <coughs> We see that in care homes. We see that, you know, the privatisation of care homes has been a tragedy, I think. That's the other thing I think is important to acknowledge, how much the NHS is already privatised, yeah. yes. you know, and, and how much money is actually wasted on that. As I was talking to somebody not so long ago who'd been sent for a, a, a series of tests to a private mm. hospital by the NHS. Mm. So the NHS is paying for this. My friend is offered a private room for the day, on suites, the whole works. I mean, what does that cost? They only needed to go in and have the tests and go out again, but they're put in this private room. And then the organisation, or the private hospital, can't actually follow up the tests. No. So they come back to the NHS again. So all that money has been wasted. Now, that's a microcosm of how money is wasted. And if you if you add on to that the... Um, PPFI, you know, the, 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 the private initiatives for building and renovation works in NHS hospitals, and how much money was lost there for um, on penalty clauses in contracts. You know, I mean, it wasn't just the profits from fulfilling the contract, from building a new hospital or for renovating an old one. It was a penalty clause because the hospital wasn't ready for the work to commence at the time set on the contract. So a whole lot of money is just given away completely um, in addition to all the profits being made on the work. So the amount of privatisation before we even get onto the internal market and how inefficient that actually is and how much money is wasted within the NHS playing what is really a game of this private market, or sorry, internal market. I mean, it, it, it's just so, um, extraordinary. So is that the rebuttal? Because, you know, an argument that you might frequently hear is, actually, it's very good when people use private services, you know, because um, the NHS, as we all know, it's um, struggling for funding. 
Um, you know, we've got an aging population, top heavy, you know, we've got lots of challenges as a country. So actually, it's very useful if people go off and um, go and use a private service because then they're not overloading the NHS. What's the what's the response to that? <laughs> I mean, I think, I, yeah. I think it's a different issue, isn't it? I mean, I provide a private service as a psychotherapist. I mean, I'm not going to say they shouldn't come and see me for psychotherapy. They should be getting it somewhere else. Um, I, might. I don't. <laughs> Sorry. I might. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about you personally. No, that, sure. no. I mean, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Yeah. I've been. I feel I've been driven to it, though. I mean, you see, if people. I mean, you can. It's a different area, really. I mean, you can construct the argument that that on at an individual level, if people can afford private health care, etc. But again, that feeds into the whole business of private health insurance. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't believe that it's impossible for to have a national health service that actually provides the, the, the help and therapy people need. I also don't think it's inimical to that, um, to have people providing therapy in the private sector as well. Um, but when we talk about private, you know, I, I'm talking about people like you and I, Merrin, mm. you know, in, in private practice as therapists. I'm not talking about multinational mm. healthcare companies providing something called mental health care, which is very different. And if you look at those, the way those companies operate, they have all the constraints and all the limitations and all the bureaucracy and all the authoritarianism that people have complained about in the past in the NHS. Mm. I mean, they're not an alternative to the NHS. They're a, they're a they're a private reproduction of the worst aspects of public health care that's being done for profit. And I guess the problem is that the stronger they grow, so that so the more that people are pushed to them and use them, the stronger they grow, the stronger the vested interest is, the more that feeds it. It's a feedback loop, right? Because then it feeds back into then again, there's more, there's more of a weight and a voice behind the people who are hoping that the NHS doesn't you know function properly because then that's going to drive more patients towards them so it's a feedback loop so so rather than actually you taking the weight you I mean you know the individual might possibly on that one day alleviate the strain of the nhs on that one day but in terms of a cycle you're, you're going to be potentially um you know again not talking about private practitioners but if you're using a company you're potentially fe feeding into a dangerous cycle right you see i think it's very similar to education you know, that public, you know, the free comprehensive education, I think, should be good enough and resourced enough to not need a private system. And that people just because they feel privileged and want to keep their kids away from other people who maybe are a bit different to them or might, you know, not talk as posh, you know. And I think the problem is the more you run one system down or starve it of resources the more other people you know like people like us who might worry that the school around the corner isn't good enough or they might get bullied or they might be the only whatever put their kids in private school and that just adds to it and it's a bit like if you feel the waiting list for something life-changing in the NHS isn't is too long you can't blame the individual for going private, but it shouldn't be that long. Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy, actually, because if with, with education, you know, you're never going to get to a system and you probably shouldn't where, um, you know, a parent is always going to want to do the best for their mm. children. It would be crazy to sort of say, 
no, you can't put more resources in. But there's a big difference between, say, everyone goes to the same through the same system and there's say private tutors or private practitioners who you might employ as individuals to help that thing but you're not but by creating a two-tier system that's something very different and that's probably quite an appropriate analogy right to what we're talking about here well see my my view about private whether it's education or 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 therapy is that that in in some cases it provides space for innovation Mm. i mean i defended Summerhill uh, at a point when they were threatening to close it down because it didn't conform to this rule and that rule. And what so is Summerhill yeah, just sorry. for the public? Well, Summerhill, Summerhill was uh, the school that was set up by A.S. Neal hmm. um, that was run a bit like a therapeutic community. The kids had their own council that they elected people onto who met with the staff and, uh, and kind of negotiated the running of the school. And the kids didn't have to go to lessons. Um, they went and did whatever they felt inclined to do. So you were relying on the kids' natural curiosity and interest and the capacity of the staff to produce interesting lessons that the kids might want to go to, rather than saying everybody's got to sit down in rows and be, and be told the way it is. You know? so, and I think you know, the, 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 the problem for any kind of state system is the struggle against institutionalization, bureaucratization, and to allow space for for innovation. Now, in the in the mental health services, certainly going back to the time we were talking about before 1970s, early 1980s, um, there was a kind of freedom where a creative and imaginative consultant could set up a therapeutic community or set up a family therapy unit or a crisis service. Um, And although it often was a struggle to defend those kind of spaces against a, a, a bureaucracy, they actually produced extraordinary innovation and extraordinarily interesting and important services that, that those who weren't involved in them directly could still learn from. I mean, it affected the whole way of, of thinking about, about therapy, therapeutic communities, different forms of, of, of crisis work and so on. Now that's gone as far as I know. I don't think, I can't think of a therapeutic community in the, NH, in the NHS um, anymore. I mean, there may be the odd one, but I used to be able to ro- reel off a list of them, you know. Well, they're modified. I think modified. they've all had to modify, like the Brenchley in Kent. And I know that um, Rex and Steve work in Oxford, but they're all modified because yeah. they, the pressure has been to, in you know, you have to have evidence, therefore you have to use an evidence-based model like MBT, which has got sort of... Mentalisation-based therapy. therapy. Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, like ours was, you know, the one that they closed last year, you know, was or two years ago, was, um, yeah, probably one of the last sort of hospital-based therapeutic community. I think the Cass- Castle is still in some yeah. ways a therapeutic community, but it doesn't feel like in any shape or form what we would recognise. And that was actually yeah. what, so, I mean, that's, that's um, where our listeners... Uh, Dick, that was kind of our springboard into this whole sort of topic is the kind of um, demise of Merrin's service and sort of us trying to kind of interrogate that and, and understanding about it. I wonder whether to kind of um, to kind of fit to kind of end on what 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 are the you know if 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 we could enact sort of three big reforms. I mean, I, I feel like the one very obvious one is 
flood money back into the system but you know in in uh who's controlling it well exactly in in lieu of uh you know big political change happening anytime soon what what are the kind of things that we could that we could do to kind of improve the rollout of mental health provision within the nhs well exactly what marion said you know what what, if you're going to prod all this money it depends what it's going to be spent on i mean i was trying to get an appointment when Corbyn was in power with the um, the supposed shadow minister for mental health, um, because I wanted to go along with a couple of other people who run psychotherapy units to say, look, we've got proposals to how you address mental health. And it was primarily about going back to the, the, the grassroots and the front line. And then nego- what we've been talking about, the negotiations between patients and therapists, and that, that drove the service rather than plans made from the top. Yeah. Um, it had to come from the bottom. And the other thing I was just going to mention was there was a book came out a few years ago by uh, a woman who'd been a long term psychiatric patient, a book called Asylums. Oh, Asylum. Yeah. I can't. Uh, you Is remember. it The Last Asylum by Barbara? Barbara that's the one. Yeah, Barbara that's Taylor. Yeah, Barbara Taylor. Brilliant that's book. The one. Brilliant book. Mm. Yeah, and, and reviewed again by Jenny Diskey in the, yeah. in the London Review Books, who had the same kind of experience. And what came out of that was how much support, even uh, how much spontaneous support patients in hospital give to each other mm. and how much more important that turned out to be than what was happening with, with the doctors and the nursing staff. And uh, I mean, that is a that is a huge resource that I think, you know, the therapeutic community movement tried to mobilize and, 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 and structure and coordinate. But at the moment, as far as I can see, it's, it's, it's completely neglected, that, that kind of resource. The other thing I wanted to, to, to throw in, because we were talking about, you know, the, 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 you, you said something, Marin, about the relationships. And if you look at um, the current thinking about suicide, it's all about risk management and it's all about a series of procedures now my view is that when somebody is suicidal their their lifeline is the relationship they have with their therapist or their nurse or their their doctor or whoever and once you start proceduralizing that relationship rather than allowing it a, a, a level of spontaneity then you're in a way you're breaking the connection that is so important and one of the one of the saddest things that i've encountered on, on in some of my consultancy work is hearing seasoned mental health professionals saying that what they do we're going back a few years but they say what we do now when i get somebody who is suicidal i no longer trust my own experience mm. and my own instincts and i d- don't do for them what my what my impulse is to do i have to follow the procedures and tick the boxes because i can't take the risk yeah. and if i follow my intuition and it goes wrong they're going to fry my ass and i'm going to be out of work um i mean that is sad it's tragic actually because those people who've been in the business for that amount of time they have got an instinct they have got an intuition and it's very important that there's space 
for them to work on the basis of that intuition and their particular understanding of that individual patient that they're working with at the time and not get bogged down in, in, in all these procedures. Absolutely, Dick. Because it's become actually, actually dangerous. Yes, absolutely. Patient's life. And when I work, you know, that's where a therapeutic community, the team was robust enough to manage risk in a way that we felt was based on the knowledge of the patient, the ability to push some of the responsibility onto them to keep themselves safe, not that culture that we're now in, which is, will I be, you know, struck off if something happens? How do you avoid any risk at all? And that is all tick box. And it feels like it has a, it's become meaningless. And I know people who, you know, have tried to talk. It feels like people don't, they panic, they panic and they don't know how to do it. And so you just use a model that is a manual and therefore you don't allow, you know, one of my worst experiences was visiting the Sun Project in Croydon, which was hailed potentially as a sort of drop-in informal groups in the community for people who had long-term needs. It sounds great. When I went to visit, I'm afraid to say, one experience I had was with a very nervous, inexperienced, unsupported nurse who went through, the people turned up on a, in a group, there wasn't even any tea, and you only had this time, and you sat in this group, and basically she had to go through this formulaic answers. Do you feel suicidal? Do you want to kill yourself? Have you been dangerous in any shape or form? And after she completed all that, what's your plan? And then end of the group. And the people sort of said, well, I didn't come to talk about that. I wanted to meet people and have a cup of tea and be relational. And it felt like... It was just another quick fix that you can say you do, but the meaning of it and the skill and the experience and the support that you need, I'm afraid it feels like that's disappearing in the NHS and it's all quick, cheap and tick. So we've solved it. <laughs> you need to have a lot of tea. <laughs> yes, Ian We're talking that you're talking about T taking collective responsibility, yes. you know, and that Ian Simpson's written a couple of papers about even when you're running an, a, an outpatient therapy unit, what is really important is the team yes. sharing the impact of the distress and the suffering that's brought in and holding that collectively because you can't do it individually. You can't. And the models based on what an individual therapist can do are necessarily limited because you need that kind of. <clears throat> collective holding they need because essentially what i think we believe about people's distress is it is about how they relate to other people and you know what then they internalize painful experiences in their family in their personal network in their workplace wherever those experiences get inside them but essentially it's about the relationships with other people so a, a form of therapy that isn't focused on yeah. those relationships is is always going to struggle and yeah. always in a way going to be counterproductive because what cbt does as far as i can see is it takes a problem and it puts it inside an individual kind of disconnected from their social context and their all the rest of their relationships and then it seeks to correct yes. this problem inside the individual yeah. which is incorrect thinking um, you know, quite who decides what is correct thinking is another, you know, another whole open question. Um, but but you also, can only manage that, Dick, if you've got 
I mean, at one point, I would say in the good years of a TC in an NHS is that we could take a lot of risks because we did believe that our managers would support us. And that's because they, they understood the nature of some of the very difficult um, presentations that we had. But that now seems to have gone out the window. I think that's a very, um, hopefully, a, a sort of good place to kind of wrap up because in our next episode, that's actually, we're, we're, we're going to sort of try and broaden the net more widely and think about um, sort of some of these other societal structures and looking at that, exactly what you said, Tech, about the idea that things are relational and, you know, uh, challenging this, trying to use some different um, evidence and spheres to sort of challenge this idea that problems come from within the individual that need fixing and that they are much more about societal and relational problems that we have to view them in that way. Can I say one more thing about evidence? Please. Mm-hmm. Because, well, I, 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 an organisation I've become come connected with recently um, has provides a kind of drop-in um, plus individual therapy for those who want it, etc. Open-ended. You come for therapy for as long as you want it. You go to the drop-in for as long as you want it. And they just had a researcher do a whole series of interviews with the people using that facility who talk about how much better it is than anything else they've been offered before. Because what they really want to do is talk and they want to be listened to and they don't want to be judged and labelled as having this diagnosis, that diagnosis or mad or crazy or whatever. And they talk about how refreshing it is and how liberating it is to just be able to talk and not to have somebody tell them they're thinking in the wrong way or they're crazy or whatever. Um, and I think, you know, the way to research this stuff is actually to talk to the people <laughs> who are the patients and the clients and listen to what they say, rather than taking in these massive measuring instruments and trying to fit them into all these yes. boxes, because they're already saying they don't want to be fitted into boxes in their therapy. And I don't think they want to be <laughs> fitted into boxes in the way that their progress is evaluated or, 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 or the way their whole experience is, is assessed. Yeah. They want to be able to that space to speak. Wow, there we go. That was brilliant. Thanks so much. Yeah, Dick. Dick ran off before um, we got to say thanks, but thank you so much, Dick. That was I. I it was such a fascinating chat. I mean, I, d- I don't know what you thought or what like your t- your your takeaways were, kind of. Well, I'm completely uh, in line with what Dick was saying, and I really want to thank him for going back to basics, mm. like you know, redefining for all of us what is neoliberalism, <laughs> what is managerialism, but also I think the whole thing that just echoes what Farad said as well about things that are valued or recognised are numbers, mm. you know, and that quality has become about quantity. That's the, that, that's the key thread, isn't it, that it kind is. of runs through, is just this idea that, you know, yeah, this this whole triumph of the, of the statistical, yeah. that I guess does feel like it ties into managerialism as well. It sort yeah. of speaks that language, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and one size fits all, mm. imposed on everything. Whereas I think what Dick was arguing was that the key is flexibility. Mm. And also, you can't predict the future, but we should be responsive. And of course, our main theme is relational. Mm. You know, that this is such a huge resource. Relationships are the main resource that Mm. we all have. 
and not to reproduce a pattern of rejection over time, which always seems to happen. Which I guess if you've got the one size fits all, then you're so much more likely to do that element yeah. of rejection because if you don't fit the mould, yeah. which, you know, as Dick was sort of arguing for, it's very difficult to run a service in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I you, you can totally understand how it's so challenging to, um, you know, because there are budgets and we do forecast and things. And, you know, it, it, I, 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 I can I can hear another voice saying, well, but, yes, it's all very well. But, you're but I would say and I think other people re reaffirm this is that investment long term has to be the way because in the long run it's cheaper mm. and that shouldn't be our only feature but it is cheaper to treat someone preventatively than acutely acute mm. services are what eats up most of the budget and that is a very interesting segue because in our next episode you know we're going to be looking at uh, two different environments where you know arguably the people where people are in crisis you know mm. so we're going to be speaking to uh, one person who works in the A&E department of um, a general hospital and, you know, what options are available um, for her to kind of give people support if they come in in acute mental distress. Um, and we're also going to look at a very different environment, but people living in crisis in another way, which is um, prisoners. Yeah. Um, and again, I think what we're hopefully going to tease out in that episode is it's so challenging um, well, two or two things. One, it's so challenging to deal with people who are in crisis mm. and that it's so much better for us as a society to be doing things that are preventative. And secondly, that unfortunately, those people who are in crisis, they need loads of support. And unfortunately, in the current climate, they're getting even less. Um, and yeah, that's what we'll be looking at in our next episode. Yeah, absolutely. Well put, Rob. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed it and we'll look forward to seeing you next time as we try and make some sense of the madness Making Sense of the Madness is an independently produced podcast that's been kept strictly within the family. The producer was me, Rob Thorman. Sound was mixed by Rami Radi. Rami also composed and produced our original music. Sophie Jones designed our cover art. We'd like to thank Ella Jones and Tom Keller for their production support. And Moan and I would like to offer our heartfelt thanks to all our guests across the series. Music